Hello, everyone. My name is Ashley Robinson, and I'm the editor of SpudSmart. Today, I'll be serving as your host for this webinar. Today's theme is keeping your potatoes free, your fields free of unwanted potatoes. I'd like to take a minute to thank BASF and McCain for partnering with us on this roundtable series webinar. Today's presenters are Gavin Graham, who is the Weed Management Specialist and Provincial Minor Use Coordinator with the New Brunswick Department of Agriculture, Aquaculture, and Fisheries. And then our second presenter is Erin Burns, who is a Weed Science Extension Specialist and Assistant Professor in the Department of Plant, Soil, and Microbial Sciences at Michigan State University. In today's webinar, you'll learn about study results on volunteer potato control, best practices for controlling these unwanted visitors, and what herbicides are available for control of them. During the presentation, you'll likely have some questions for our speakers. Please type these into the chat box at any time during the webinar, and we'll address them during the question and answer session after the presentation. Today's webinar is being recorded and will be made available at spudsmart.com following this live event. Our first presenter is Gavin Graham, who, as said before, is the Weed Management Specialist when Provincial and Minor Use Coordinator with the New Brunswick Department of Agriculture, Aquaculture, and Fisheries. Gavin grew up on a mixed farm in Saskatchewan and completed his Master's in Plant Sciences from the University of Saskatchewan. He has an active weed research extension program for New Brunswick farmers with a focus on wild blueberry production. He is an active member in both the New Brunswick Institute of Agrologists and the Canadian Weed Science Society. Take it away, please, Gavin. All right. Uh, thanks for the introduction. Uh, as was mentioned, my name is Gavin Graham. I'm the Weed Management Specialist here in New Brunswick. And today I'm going to be talking about volunteer uh, potato management. If you've got any questions, feel free to put them into the chat for a discussion later on or else reach out directly afterwards after the presentation too. So as far as uh, volunteers go, it's really impossible to remove all the tubers during our harvest procedures, depending on your size profile or, or what your crop's looking like. Some estimates are that you can leave up to 10% of those tubers in the field. So those tubers are going to, to stay in the field and could potentially sprout in the next season and become weeds or act as weeds in the year following rotation years and even uh, give direct competition for that next crop or else act as an alternate host for, for some of the other pests or diseases that we're dealing with in potato production. So uh, this can you know, act as a, as a bridge to uh, spread these uh, issues around and, uh, and uh, help them spread within, within the fields or within our, our landscape. So it is important to, to try to look at control. Uh, if you do leave those volunteers uh, grow for that full cycle or that full season, they can produce those daughter tubers and then your cycle will just keep on repeating. So it is important to, uh, to try to manage those ones when you, you first see them and, and try to limit their spread and limit their potential to, uh, to, to give you impacts uh, later on down the road. So uh, volunteer uh, potatoes are not an easy weed to control. Uh, they are, uh, can be pretty difficult depending on what your crop rotation looks like and, and what your following crops are. Uh, one of the issues is that these volunteers have a pretty wide emergence pattern. They tend to emerge at various times over the season. And this is really controlled by how deep those tubers are within your soil profile. So the ones that are a little bit shallower will tend to come out earlier and if they're deeper ones, it'll, it'll take them longer to, to get out of the ground. Uh, it also depends a little bit on the health of those tubers that were put in there as well too. You know, if they're smaller disease tubers, they tend to be not as robust, but if they're kind of larger tubers or healthier tubers, then 
then they will uh, be a little bit more vigorous on their early growth. And then a little bit on your field conditions as well too, depending on where they are in, the, in, their, in your soil profile. Uh, the other issue is that uh, these tubers do act as storage reserves for that weed or, or that volunteer plant. Uh, so they'll use those uh, storage organs as, as reserves to uh, grow back after, after some treatments or, or after some control options. So it's, you know, the, you will expect to see multiple flushes or, or regrowth uh, following some, some treatments as well. Uh, they are also very vigorous uh, and uh, very, very, uh, uh, can be a problem uh, that way as well too, that they are, are pretty robust uh, weed and uh, they can be difficult to control uh, because of that. So as far as management goes, there's no real single one management tactic or technique that's going to work for everyone. You really need to integrate uh, multiple strategies to, to try to get ahead of these weed species. And prevention is really the, the cornerstone of any kind of volunteer potato management program. Uh, anytime that you can stop the problem before it becomes a problem, you're gonna be better off in the long run. So as far as the agronomic practices that you can, can look at in your potato year, for best uh, volunteer management, uh, any tuber that you put in the storage is better than any tuber that you leave in the field. So the more tubers that you're able to take and remove from the field, the better off you're going to be when it comes to a volunteer uh, situation. That could have some impacts on your, you know, your pack out or contracts and that kind of stuff. So there is some, some balancing to, to do there. Uh, but from a volunteer perspective, taking more, more potatoes out of the field, you're, the better you're going to be. And to be able to do that, that's where you need to have any practices, practices to ensure a uniform, properly sized crop so that you're able to get the most out of the, the field as possible. So that comes down to your seed spacing, seed management, making sure that you've got you know, a healthy seed stock, putting the right fertility there for the size profile that you're looking for, you know, reducing the disease impacts, but ultimately a lot of it's up to, to mother nature. And as we've seen here in uh, Eastern Canada uh, this past season, you know, some dry conditions can, can really impact that size profile and, and make it a little bit difficult to, to do that uh, job properly. So as far as when you get into the actual harvest of, of your uh, potato crop, you know, making sure that your harvester settings and speeds are, are set correctly, trying to, to make sure that you're, you're maximizing the amount of product that goes, goes back into, into the bin and into the storage, you know, avoiding spills in the field, uh, making sure that your tubers have uh, fully removed from the stems so that you're not, uh, you know, they're not getting caught on the vines and, and going through your harvester that way. And that's where making a proper desiccant choice if, if required is important. And then the, the other option is Aimfield uh, sprout inhibitor. We've really gotten away from that, uh, but it is uh, something to consider if your markets will allow that or if your, your practices will allow for that Aimfield uh, sprout inhibitor. Uh, but really when it comes to volunteer management, we are really relying on our winter conditions. You know, the, the best, best thing for, for volunteer management is just to hope for that cold. Uh, if you look at the, the, or the literature, uh, there's mention of about 50 chilling hours at minus two degrees Celsius is the requirement to, to stop those volunteers. Uh, so, and you need to get that temperature at the tuber level. So if the tuber is sitting at the top, it's a little easier to get that cold. If it's buried uh, within your soil profile, it's, it, it takes a little bit harder. It's a little bit harder to get it there. And that's where that depth of burial or depth of, of the tuber within your soil uh, comes into play. And then the other uh, factor that comes into play there is the amount of snow cover that you see. 
you know, for, for us here and in New Brunswick, we typically see more of those volunteers along those windbreaks or, or along where the, the snow is going to gather and, and uh, kind of insulate the soil. So that's something uh, to keep in mind if you're scouting fields uh, later on, uh, pay particular attention to where the snow was covered if, if you're worried about uh, soil temperatures. Uh, so this is just a, a quick snapshot of some information on soil temperatures. Uh, the, the colorful picture is from the Cornell uh, site, uh, basically just outlining some temperatures at uh, two inch. Uh, it was actually from last winter, but just shows that uh, depending on where you are and, and the time of year that you're looking at it, you can get some variability uh, on that uh, soil temperature. And then the, the picture on the left-hand side there, or the graph on the left-hand side, just outlines the difference in temperature that you can see in the soil based on uh, where in that soil profile you're taking that temperature. So if you're close to the surface, soil surface, typically you get a, a much colder temperatures there. But as you go deeper into the soil profile, the temperature is, is a little bit warmer uh, and those potatoes are a little bit more insulated there. So, so depending on where those, those tubers are in the soil profile will depend on how uh, well they're able to overwinter or how much exposure they get to that, that uh, minus two temperature. So this is where tillage comes into play. Uh, so if you're looking at tillage after harvest, you really want to try to leave those tubers at the top of the soil surface as much as possible, just so that they have the best chance of, of exposure to those colder temperatures. And then you don't have to worry about managing those tubers in the future. Uh, if you had a smaller size profile, or if you had uh, some issues with harvesting, uh, that, that's the time to maybe for sure to, to try to avoid that tillage if your volunteer risk is high. Uh, just because if you are doing that tillage, you put them into the soil, your risk of, uh, of, of being able to get that uh, chilling temperature is not going to be there. Uh, some things to get around this, if you do need to do some tillage, you could look at some spot tillage or, or look at your volunteer risk and then make the decision on how you're going to, to be able to manage that. As far as tillage when you get into your rotational years or outside of that kind of potato season, uh, those tillage there can help exhaust those tuber reserves. Uh, depending on the timing, if you, uh, you know, the, the tubers do have uh, some pretty good reserves, so you may have to look at multiple passes to be able to get that done. And then if you are able to do some tillage in crop, that can help reduce daughter tuber production. So, so if you are uh, seeing issues, if you're growing some, some wider row crops, some tillage in between those rows might be able to help you. So some of the other options to consider is some cultural controls in your rotational crop. Once again, similar to the message on the potato years, just to make sure you got a competitive crop using sound ag agronomic methods, trying to get that crop to be as competitive as it can be against those volunteers. Depending on your situation, you could look at delaying your plantings or avoiding underseeding grain could be another option, uh, just to give you a few different options or, or better uh, toolbox as far as herbicide control. but it depends on your rotational situation. And, and honestly, I think uh, the differences from, you know, location to location across Canada is really gonna be driving that. Uh, some of uh, the biological options, you know, you always see uh, Colorado potato beetles feeding on those, those volunteers to, to reduce survivability. But honestly, that's something that we're, we're kind of looking to control to avoid those things. So it's, it is something to, to keep in mind though, that it, it is a potential option. And for the rest of the presentation, at least in my portion here, I'll, I'll cover off some of the, the herbicide options and, and outline one specific trial that I, I had performed. So basically, uh, we 
you know, here in New Brunswick, we did try to chase volunteer potato control for quite a few seasons. We were really focused in on trying to get control within our grain crop because that's typically where our volunteer issues are the greatest, or that's where our, our options are, are maybe the greatest and we need a little bit more information there. Uh, I did try to get trials out on some overwintering populations. So going out and, and trying to find field areas that had good natural uh, volunteers and, and try to control them that way. And we also tried to put some potato seed in some cereal stands and try to mimic uh, what a volunteer would be. Uh, but in both of those approaches, we really didn't get consistent emergence of the volunteers. Pretty variable and it, I wasn't really confident in the results that we're getting. It, it just wasn't as consistent as I would like to see. And then the other thing that we were not really looking for in this, in those kinds of situations is that we were not going back at the, to those volunteers to see how many daughter tubers those were producing and how these different treatment impacts or were, were changing the, uh, the, the daughter tuber production out of these treatments. So, so basically we kind of went back to the drawing board and, and, and decided to put out a trial basically in a commercial planting kind of situation. Uh, the, the variety that we use was Russet Burbank, just because that's the, the most common one that we grow here. Uh, this situation may not be similar to what the volunteer situation would be in your rotational crops. You know, this is pretty vigorous seed, you know, given the best chance for survival, doing the best job of, of, of emergence and all that. And we don't have the added impacts of crop competition on these plants either. They're basically just competing with themselves. Uh, so they, they are pretty vigorous and, and pretty active growth. Uh, but I think it was a good representation of kind of the worst case scenario and gave us a chance to evaluate these products on some different uh, at, at a, kind of the worst case scenario. And then we can maybe make some inferences to our, our commercial production after that. Uh, so the, the image at the right hand side of the slide there is the stage that uh, the applications of these different treatments went on at. So so a little bit variable in the in the sizing of the potatoes, but I would think that would be uh, pretty similar to what you would see in a volunteer situation within a field, potentially maybe even a little bit later than you'd like to see for these applications. But like I mentioned earlier, uh, it is quite variable on the emergence there. So I'm going to have this uh, consistency along the bottom of the slide here as far as when I get into the different herbicide treatments. Uh, so basically different pictures from each of these uh, different plot areas, seven days, 15 days, 23 days, and 36 days after application. So that, that progression will be the same for each of the different herbicide treatments. And then the final picture will be a visual representation of what the tubers, uh, the daughter tubers that were harvested from these plots look like. And the unit there is going to be kilograms of tubers uh, within the row. And then the numbers at the top is percent control above any of the day ratings there. So moving into the results, uh, you can see the untreated area, uh, normal growth of the potato crop. Basically, the flowers were starting to show up on that 15-day uh, after application rating. Uh, but you can see, you know, no, no injury showing up there. And uh, the 24 kilograms is, is the number to keep in mind as kind of the worst case scenario for, for, the, or for the tuber production. If we look at Roundup, uh, applied at the uh, 900 grams of active ingredient per hectare rate, uh, this was the best overall treatment in the trial that I had here. You can see the visual control was, was pretty consistent uh, throughout the early season, but we were starting to see a little, little bit of regrowth coming at that 36 day uh, after application, but a pretty significant impact on that daughter tuber production. So a, a real good reduction in the daughter tuber numbers. And you can even see uh, some seed, seed piece effects 
So that's the top uh, right-hand picture there. So that was one of the seed pieces from, from the, the planting that we had there. You can see the, the glyphosate was getting down to the tuber and getting some, some good control that way. The next treatment we looked at was Callisto. Uh, Callisto is one that we're, we're using uh, more in corn production, but we wanted to have a look at it just because there was good uh, volunteer control uh, recommendations for, for it from, from other regions. And you can see uh, pretty strong visual symptoms there, uh, maybe a little bit slower than what the glyphosate was, but uh, pretty significant there if you're looking at the 23 day after. But the, the potatoes did recover from these treatments though. Uh, the top picture is a 56 day after application picture. So it's looking like almost a complete uh, potato canopy by the end of the season. But we did have that strong yield impact, you know, an 80% reduction in, the, in those daughter tuber yields. So this would be a, a pretty strong treatment to look at. So shifting over to more of our kind of typical cereal herbicides, the first one we looked at here was MZPA at a, a low application rate is what I'm saying, but this is, uh, would be kind of the, the standard rate that we'd be using here in, in New Brunswick or even training towards a little bit on the high side actually for, for what we, we'd be typically seeing in our cereal production. You can see the uh, MCPA did slow down those, the, the volunteers a little bit on those first few ratings, but uh, they did catch up by the end of the season and real no yield reduction at the end of the day. So, so the MCPA really didn't uh, help us in our volunteer control situation. If we up the application rate, we did improve things slightly, uh, but really not enough to justify that that higher use rate. And and uh, the the rate that we're using at this high rate was getting towards the top end of the label. And and I think the the risk of crop injury to your cereal crop would be uh, too high to even bother with this one. So I think uh, bumping up our MCPA rate isn't isn't going to be the solution for volunteer management. Uh, one of the newer ones we looked at was Trophy. Uh, it did improve things over MCPA amine applied alone. Uh, we did see a bit of a reduction in yield, uh, but the label here is is pretty narrow for us here in Eastern Canada, at least anyway. Uh, Western Canada might have a little bit more flexibility over uh, using this one, but uh, a decent uh, uh, you know uh, visual reduction uh, in plant cover. But by the end of the the season, we were still getting uh, quite a few volunteer uh, tubers being set. Uh, Pixero is, is another one of the newer ones, uh, a little bit better on the suppression earlier on uh, after application, uh, but the potatoes did come back and then the yield was decreased slightly, but still not to a, to a very high level. Infinity had uh, really good visual symptoms very early on after application. Uh, you know, the, if you look at these images first off, they, they look pretty similar to the, those Callisto slides. And that is because they have that similar, uh, or one component in infinity is the same uh, mode of action as what uh, Callisto would be. So you see that that bleaching symptom, uh, but there was a pretty quick recovery. Uh, you know, uh, it did recover a little bit faster than what those Callisto treatments were, uh, but we were still getting a, a fairly decent yield effect uh, on those those daughter tubers of of 40% yield reduction there. Looking at Refine Extra, uh, or Refine Extra is the name that we're calling it back when we were putting out this trial. Uh, we had very good suppression with Refine uh, early on in the season, uh, 70, 80, 70% control uh, on those earlier timings, but we did see some regrowth there as well too. Uh, the tubers uh, yield wise, uh, fairly strong reduction. Uh, one thing we noticed with the Refine is that we did increase our number of tubers that we were harvesting, 
uh, but they were smaller tubers. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind that the, the refined treatment did change our size profile a little bit. If we went through and added the MCPA to refine, which is uh, one of the standard treatments that we use for, for a lot of our production acres here, it was did offer a bit of an improvement over the refine by itself, but not strong enough to really justify uh, the addition. Uh, if you're looking at you know different weed species or looking for that full package of weed control, uh, maybe adding the MCPA to the refine would, would help you out there. So just to uh, have a little bit of a conclusion on the herbicide treatments that we put out there, Roundup was the best treatment for visual control and daughter tuber yield. So, so I think Roundup is, is the strongest option that we had in the trial. Uh, Callisto had some regrowth, but there was some good control of daughter tubers. So uh, for corn production or some of the other uh, crops that Callisto has a label for, I think this is a good option. MCPA mean alone was not really effective. Uh, moving over to Pixaro and Trophy did improve visual suppression. Uh, but they didn't really improve the final tuber yields. Uh, but the strongest ones, as far as the cereal uh, perspective, Infinity, Refine, and Refine plus MCPA were the best as far as suppression goes, but a little bit more reduction in tuber yields. But honestly, uh, any of the grain herbicides were not as strong as the Roundup or the Callisto within the trial. So just to, to wrap up as far as the discussion goes, you know, uh, I think if you had these volunteers in a crop situation, if you're growing these in a pretty competitive cereal crop, I think our control levels would have improved and maybe some of those conclusions would have been a little bit stronger for some of these herbicide options. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, we had chieftain spacers. Uh, so we put uh, chieftains kind of to, to signify the ends of the plots, you know, having the reds when we are harvesting. Uh, these uh, spacers did behave differently for some of the different products. Uh, Pixaro was the one that we noticed the most that uh, Pixaro was really controlling the chieftains much better than the Russet Burbanks. So there might be a variety uh, impact that's happening in here. So that's something else to keep in mind. And then honestly, I think the best measures from the trial is just to spray before the volunteers get too large. Uh, you know, as you're dealing with larger and larger plants, uh, they, do are, they are harder to control. So with that, I know there was one mention about uh, grabbing the email address. It is up there again. So if you wanna jot that down, but uh, feel free to put any questions that you have in the chat and we can uh, answer those questions later on or else reach out to me uh, at the email address or the phone number that's listed there uh, if you wanna talk to me throughout the season as well too. So thanks everyone for your time and look forward to the question session later on. Thanks so much, Graham, uh, Gavin. Good job. And as he said, remember, if you have any questions for Gavin or Aaron right away, uh, please type those into the chat box at any time during the webinar, and we'll address them during the question and answer session after the presentations. Our next presenter is Aaron Burns, who is a weed science extension specialist and assistant professor in the Department of Plant, Soil, and Microbial Sciences at Michigan State University. Erin started at Michigan State in April 2017. She received her Bachelor of Science degree from the College of St. Benedict, uh, which in, is in Minnesota, in biology, her Master of Science degree from North Dakota State University in plant sciences, and her PhD from Montana State University in plant sciences. Erin's research and extension program focuses on current and emerging problematic weeds in Michigan cropping systems, specifically forages, potatoes, corn, and recently industrial hemp. Current research focuses on practices to mitigate the development and spread of herbicide-resistant weeds and understanding. Thanks, Erin, and please take it away. Awesome. Thanks for that introduction and, um, 
and for everyone joining here today. And so we're going to switch gears and talk about volunteer potato management in corn, because that's often the, the phase, at least here in Michigan, um, that we see it being probably the most uh, problematic and that I get the most uh, questions about for control. So that's where we, we really focus some of our, our trial work. And as you, as you previously learned through uh, Gavin's discussion, volunteer potatoes are, are difficult to control. They're, they're a beast within themselves with having that huge storage reserve compared to some of other, other uh, weed species, which much smaller seeds, um, and that they just have that ability to grow quite quickly and, and be quite damaging to the crop that you're, you're competing with. And then specifically in corn and, and in many other cropping systems, there are no herbicides available that will both completely control the volunteers, but ultimately the goal is to reduce that number of daughter tubers that are produced. Because that is, as mentioned previously, can continue that cycle and either be problematic then um, to your next potato phase or whatever your, your next uh, cropping system is. And that uh, volunteer potatoes may become more problematic in the future, given that uh, we're starting to have much more wild, mild winters um, here, you know, especially in Michigan, we've, we've relied on our cold weather to kill some of these volunteers and, and that's just not happening anymore. So they may become more problematic uh, in the future if you don't have that problem um, yet. So studies at MSU have shown that most potato cultivars that we grow here at, um, in Michigan break down after about a day of exposure to either 27 degrees Fahrenheit or which is uh, negative 2.8 Celsius. And that's about for a day, um, give or take a few hours. So what we've done is uh, there is a, a potato monitoring site that you can visit. We can put that in the chat box later too, uh, that will give the predictable, um, predicts if you'll have volunteer trouble or not based off of soil temperatures um, from November to March 31st. So you can see that on the screen is, is a snapshot of this with the state of Michigan and then the locations in which uh, we've had studies and um, looking at these soil temperatures. And what it does is gives you the number of hours either above or below um, 27 degrees Fahrenheit and at different soil, temp soil depths. So at two inches and then at four inches, which is a little bit more difficult to get that cold. And then it gives you a risk in a, in a red, yellow, or green. So the green would be low risk, meaning that we did achieve uh, greater than 120 hours during this time frame below um, our threshold of 27 or negative 2.8. And moderate would be you achieve that at two inches, but not at four inches. So that might mean that you that cold temperature has killed off that top layer of volunteers, but those that are insulated uh, deeper into the soil would, um, would still continue to grow and could be problematic the following season. And high temp, uh, the high risk is if you did not achieve that threshold at either of your of your soil depths. So this is what we're starting to see be much more um, consistent here throughout the, the state of Michigan. And definitely the past few years, we have had uh, larger volunteer uh, issues than in years past. So the trial that we conducted at MSU focused on herbicides that you can use in corn production. And these are all HPPD inhibitors, so the site of action group number is group 27. So when you're looking on those uh, herbicide labels, anything that had a 27 that was labeled for corn here in Michigan is, is what we tried to try out. So we used uh, on this table on your screen, we have the, the trade names, 
And then in the blue is the uh, active ingredient name. I just included those in case some of these trade names are different between uh, the U.S. and Canada, but I think the majority of them are, are pretty much similar. And then the rates, uh, both in uh, fluid ounces and in liters, and then the additives that we needed to put in with those. So COC stands for crop oil concentrate, AMS, and then uh, MS, MSO is methylated seed oil, or NIS is non-ionic surfactant. And those are important to add in uh, with these herbicides to ensure that we could get both thorough coverage of our volunteer potatoes when we we're applying that herbicide and, um, and trying to make sure that those herbicides can benefit uh, penetrate that that leaf layer and get into the plant as quickly as possible so that they can uh, do their job at, at controlling those volunteers. And then what we looked at was if we could add atrazine in with some of these herbicide combinations, because with many of these HPPD inhibitors, there's literature that shows that they uh, you can add in atrazine. Uh, we used half pound. Uh, you can get some synergistic impacts, which all that means is that you get greater control than if you just use one of those herbicides alone. So that was the next set of treatments was looking at those two combinations. And uh, similar to Gavin, we tried to track down natural populations of volunteers for a handful of years, and I just couldn't find a, a good heavy population that was evenly distributed throughout the field uh, that was large enough for us to put our trial into. So what we did was we made our own volunteer population. And, and to do that, we took leftover uh, seed pieces. Uh, we used uh, the variety Snowden, which is a common chipping variety that we use here in Michigan. And um, we ensured that the seed pieces were all different sizes to reflect different initial size of tubers that you would be um, trying to control. And then what we did is we just walked this plot with baskets and we were shaking them, just randomly distributing these seed pieces. And then we ran um, different uh, levels of tillage equipment across the field and then uh, ultimately cultipacked it with the goal that we would be burying those uh, seed pieces at various depths to simulate what you would be uh, trying to control in your own field. So hopefully planting some a little bit deeper to get it delayed emergence than having some that were at the soil surface so that ultimately uh, the goal is to have a variety of, of size profiles. And then when we went to go apply our herbicide application, which you can see on the right-hand side of your screen, that's the, the picture of the field that uh, we used. And what we did is we went in and flagged individual plants that were six inches, 12 inches, or 24 inches tall, and then followed how well uh, these herbicides control those plants at each size profile to give you an idea of uh, what might be effective on small volunteers and what might be effective on taller volunteers in case uh, that's what you, you're trying to control in your field. And these are just visual pictures. These are about 35 days after herbicide application. We went and um, dug the plants and then just took some photos to give visuals of what they looked like. So on the left-hand side of your screen is Callisto alone, fairly um, good at controlling six-inch volunteers. It's very hard to see. There's a tiny uh, dried-up plant on that picture with no daughter tubers that were produced. 12 inches, we do have uh, one or two daughter, daughter tubers that were produced. We had fairly good top growth control. And then if we waited to 24 inches, uh, that was just too large for a Callisto application in which we did have some daughter tubers that were produced. 
And then if we were able to make that application with atrazine, now regardless of our size, uh, we are fairly effective at both controlling um, top growth and then ultimately reducing the daughter tubers that were being um, produced and with only uh, one very small one on that very largest size class. Next category was with Parmesan or impact. And this was not as, as successful as our Callisto applications. On the left is just the herb those herbicides alone, um, in which regardless of our size, we did start to see some daughter tubers being produced. And also you can see that that foliage is fairly healthy and green and, and bounced back pretty well from, from this herbicide application. And then if we did add atrazine, we do see a slight improvement on our small and medium-sized volunteers, um, but really no impact once we got up to our largest size class. Next herbicide treatment was Lotus. Lotus was fairly successful at controlling the smallest volunteers. Um, we did have a slight reduction at the 12 inch and then pretty much no impact at 24. But um, similar to other results, if we were able to add, able to add in that atrazine, now at 6, 12, and 24, we've really started to see a, a pretty good reduction in daughter tuber formation. We also evaluated Acuron Flexi, and at 6 inches, uh, pretty good control. 12 inches, we did have some top uh, growth, regrowth, but we, we did see a reduction in daughter tubers. And at 24 inches, uh, pretty, pretty good control for that size and probably the best best herbicide we evaluated um, on those fairly large volunteers, uh, but still quite a few, um, a bite smaller uh, daughter tubers, but they were still there. And then if we added atrazine now, we see a pretty consistent control across the board, uh, regardless of size and able to reduce the number of daughter tubers that were ultimately produced. Final herbicide we evaluated was ShieldX, similar story to the others, fairly good at six inches. Once you get a little bit larger, uh, we start to see reductions in control and ultimately um, no impact on those daughter tumors being produced. So the next uh, slides we're gonna go over are a few uh, data slides just to back up what some of these visuals are, but I like to, to show the visuals as I think they're a good way to look at um, how hard some of these larger volunteers can be to control with just a variety of herbicides. So the, the figure on your screen is now looking at, we counted the number of, of tubers per plant and we wanted to see where, did we actually have an impact on the, the number that were being produced? And we have our different herbicide treatments um, labeled across the horizontal axis on your screen. And then the different bars are our size classes. So green would be small, gray, medium, and the black is tall. So those were greater than 12 inches when we, when we apply that herbicide. And the first batch is our un, untreated, so we had uh, no herbicide. So you can look at that as your as your reference point. And then the blue line I just put as one as a one tuber per plant threshold as a as a goal that we were trying to see if we could reduce um, any tuber production possible. And what we found is when we were able to uh, apply those herbicides to small volunteers, about 60% of our treatments resulted in one or no daughter tubers being produced. So you can look at treatments of, of Callisto, Callisto plus atrazine, Lotus, Lotus plus atrazine, um, our Acuron Flexi plus or minus atrazine treatments are fairly uh, good at controlling these plants and also reducing that, that tuber production. 
But when we sprayed larger ones, so six to 12 inches or greater than 12 inches, uh, we had 25% control of those mediums and then no, uh, no treatments that were successful at, at uh, controlling tubers that were or controlling uh, daughter tuber production when we were making those herbicide applications to large volunteers. So this is general, uh, which Gavin found also in his studies, these larger volunteers are just much more difficult to control than our smaller volunteers. And then we actually weighed each one of those tubers. So maybe we, we still had tubers being produced, but they were quite small. So we know if the, the smaller ones, uh, less root or less uh, storage reserves in those tubers to, to then have to overwinter again and be problematic the, the following season. And we did see a very similar trend uh, once again, the smaller volunteers that we had, uh, the tubers they produced were also uh, were also smaller. So at the end of the day, um, when we're trying to control some pretty heavy populations, if we can get in and apply those herbicides when they're smaller, that's when we start to see uh, more successful herbicide applications. So some conclusions from the studies we conducted in corn is that overall the addition of atrazine to these HPPD inhibitors, those group 27s, across the board improved volunteer potato control. As the size of volunteer potatoes increased, our ultimate control decreased. And then um, also keep in mind, uh, we the study was without any kind of crop competition. So once again, probably reflecting more of a, a worst case scenario when you're, you're not relying on that crop competition to provide some, some volunteer control also. And then ultimately what you're gonna apply um, to control volunteers, you need to keep in mind what you're what your future crop rotations are to make sure that you're staying within those rotation restrictions. And in general, some very general conclusions, uh, highlighting what Gavin went over and what we found also was that if you can prevent the problem at first place, that's your best, uh, best bet at, at controlling these guys. So sound agronomic practices, harvest management, making sure uh, you're getting as much out of the field as possible and not leaving uh, any tubers behind. The tillage practices, so if you can keep those tubers at the soil surface, that's going to maximize your winter kill. Also, then you're not dealing with that staggered emergence when they're all kind of at the same soil profile. You'll get a, a more even flush, and then you can apply those herbicides all to, to smaller plants. And then ultimately, crop rotation um, will help you in controlling your volunteers overall, so planting time. We can plant crops a little bit later, depending on what specific species that is, and you can control those prior to planting. And then ultimately considering planting grass crops as you have a lot more herbicide options to control these broadleaf volunteer potatoes than what you do in um, broadleaf crops. And with that, um, I just have our website, which is msuweeds.com. That's where we put up all of our, our weed science research. You can find this, this study on there and then my email and phone number if you have uh, questions in the future outside of uh, the question and answer session that we're gonna go into next. Thanks so much, Erin, great job. I now like to do a short question and answer session. And if you have any questions uh, for either of our presenters that you haven't typed in yet, please type it into the chat box now. And so our first uh, question comes from uh, Guy Madison, and he asks, how viable were the daughter tubers the following spring in producing potato plants? And I think he had asked this just after uh, Gavin's presentation. So let's start with Gavin. What would you like to say about that? 
Yeah, so I think that, that's a good question. Uh, it's it's something that we didn't uh, look at in our trial. We didn't uh, take those tubers and, and plant them the next year to, to see if there was any difference in viability. Uh, just from the looks of, of the tubers, for, for most of the cereal ones at least anyway, uh, they were looking to be in pretty decent shape and, and pretty robust looking tubers. So I think that there wouldn't be much of an impact, uh, but we didn't plant them, so we don't know for sure. Aaron, do you have anything you'd like to add from your side? We also did not um, follow up and, and plant those uh, the following spring. And, and similar, ours were quite healthy looking, very, very little growth cracking or anything like that that I would predict would have uh, impacts the following year. Thank you. And we have another question from Guy. Um, I think this one might kind of fall into what you guys just said, but I'll ask it just in case. Um, how viable were the daughter tubers the following spring when compared to different sprays that were trialed in Gavin's trial with the different herbicides? Gavin, please. Yeah, no, I think I think we kind of covered that in the in the last question there that I don't think that we we didn't do the the full look at the the next year to to plant them back out, but I would be if I was guessing, they would be pretty robust. Thanks, Gavin. Okay, we're going to move on to our next question. And this one is from Anders Anderson. And he asked, uh, this is definitely towards Aaron. He asked, do you really use atrazine in the U.S.? It is causing a lot of problems in Europe. So, yes, the, the U.S. Uh, EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, is who uh, does a lot of our, our herbicide labels. And, and they have... Um, different rules that they go through when, when herbicides go up for reevaluation and, and things like that. So uh, the herbicides we do use are all approved for use and we, and we follow the label. So you definitely would want to make sure uh, that you're following your specific uh, country and regions uh, recommendations for, for herbicide uses there. But, but we do still use those, those here. And it's, and it's also dependent on soil types. Um, so we're, we're not spraying those on soil types where, you can have issues with ground bleaching and, and things like that. So they're used uh, in certain scenarios according to the label. And I know that was a question that was specifically you asked, but Gavin, would you like to add anything? Yeah, no, just, for, just from a Canadian perspective, like we do have, you know, a, a similar answer there that uh, PMRA does, does look at the, the health and safety and environmental impacts of all these chemicals. And it's still a, a registered treatment from their perspective, but, uh, uh, Quebec is is one that they are looking at uh, some different uh, restrictions provincially around atrazine. So so it's uh, something just to keep in mind that you need to be careful or look at the province that you're you're growing in and make sure you're following the rules that apply there. Thank you. And our next question is from Michael Murphy, and this is for both of you. Have either presenters looked at cover crops to suppress volunteers? If so, what are the best ones to plant? Um, how about we start with you, Gavin? Yeah, so I haven't looked at anything specifically on, on cover crops uh, for volunteer uh, potato management, but just kind of some general comments. I think anything that you're looking to, to plant that would be competitive against other weed species, like your buckwheats or anything like that, uh, I think would be, be more competitive with that. But as we're looking at uh, cover crops or service crops, I think we have the potential to maybe delay our seedings or, or come back in and mow them down afterwards or those kinds of things. So it, it, there are some different opportunities if we are looking at cover crops, just because uh, maybe we're not looking at uh, eventual harvest in you know a longer season that we can shorten up that season a little bit and give us some 
some different uh, volunteer potato control opportunities. So I think it's something that we can, you know, uh, look at a little bit more and, and from depending on how it fits into your individual grower system, I think that's the biggest thing to look at. Thank you. And Erin, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I mean, we haven't directly looked at cover crops and, and volunteer control, um, but I think anything that you can establish, you know, if you're going in for volunteers, so after potatoes that you can get established in the fall, um, and then that won't winter kill, so species that can um, grow and, and sustain throughout the winter and then resume growth early in the spring, because you need that, you need that really heavy cover crop biomass to start to see any kind of uh, weed control in general. So I think you, you need that here too to, to start to see any kind of benefits. Thank you. And this is more of a comment, but I was wondering if you guys might have anything to say about it. It comes from Robert Thornton. And his, his uh, comment here is, the response to different chemicals by different size plants would require multiple applications as tubers of different depth would produce tubers of different size at different times. Erin, uh, do you have anything to comment on that? Yeah, so that, that you, you hit it on the head. That's what makes volunteers really difficult to control is because of this, this staggered emergence patterns that some of those that are deeper and if the seed piece was, or the tuber was large enough can still emerge uh, later in the season. So that goes back into uh, those sound agronomic practice at harvest, so making sure and, and tillage implications that you're keeping those all as close to the soil surface as possible so that you can attempt to have uh, apply, apply those those herbicides to more uniformly uh, sized plants and the, and the smaller the better and then um, yeah go from there. But that that's why they're that's why they're kind of a different beast in themselves to control. Thank you, Aaron. Gavin, would you have anything to add? Yeah, no, it would be a, a similar response on my end as well, too. Like, I think it, it depends on what crop you're you're coming back with as well, too. You know, something like corn or soybeans, maybe you have a little bit more flexibility as far as multiple applications of a herbicide within one season. Uh, but if you're looking at cereal production, where basically we're, we've got one weed control shot, uh, you know, you do need to, to make sure you're timing that one kind of correctly. So it is a bit of a, a guessing game. So you know, I think you do have to have a look at your fields and what you're overwintering, you know, your potential for volunteers was as well, too. If you're just starting to see stuff coming out of the ground, maybe you do need to hold off a little bit. But but it is a little bit of ground truthing uh, within individual individual fields as well, too, just to make sure that you're covering things the right way. OK, thanks, guys. Well, that's all we have time for today. So I'd uh, like to once again thank our speakers, Gavin and Aaron, for joining us. You guys did, both did an amazing job. And once again, I would love to thank our sponsors, BASF and McCain, for making this webinar possible. And a big thank you goes out to everyone for participating. I hope you have found this information valuable. Again, a recording of this webinar will be made available on spudsmart.com. Thanks again, and we hope you have a wonderful day.